Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Graham Abbey, an actor you might have seen in TV shows like The Border, Degrassi, The Next Generation, and most recently Under the Banner of Heaven, or in movies like Defendor, Take This Waltz, and the upcoming Stay the Night. You may also have noticed him on stage at the Stratford Festival at some point over the last um, 40 years. He's also the artistic director of Prince Edward County's Festival Players, and with their summer season currently underway, it felt like a good time to have him on the show. Graham picked Chariots of Fire, Hugh Hudson's Oscar-winning 1981 drama about two English runners, Eric Little, who was a devout Christian, and Harold Abrahams, who was Jewish, who forge a friendship despite their differences and the prejudices of their era as they train for the 1924 Olympics. That's the spine of the story, which builds towards a triumphant climax while also addressing less upbeat matters like Britain's recovery after World War I, deep-rooted problems of classism and anti-Semitism within the UK, and a few other things besides. If your experience of it is only the trailer and maybe Vangelis' score, you might be surprised to hear it's a little more complex than just some guys running. But uh, it is, and we're going to run alongside it for a bit. This is someone else's movie. You know, I've seen a lot of films in my life, uh, but I was trying to think, well, what, what, what had an effect on me? So, so yes, the duos that gave her Chariots of Fire and E.T., which is probably from a period in my life. Um, I think, you know, I, Chariots of Fire spoke to, I, I always played sports my whole life. So, so being a sporting film, it spoke to me at a young age, I think. I got, I, and I, I'm fascinated by the Olympics, uh, specifically, um, sort of old Olympics. I, I, I've made a habit, at least when I was traveling in younger days, to go to former Olympic sites. I find them fascinating, you know. So so I think that combo um, brought me into it. I, I, I'm of Scottish and Irish background, so Eric Little's Scottish side in that film also spoke to me. And I just, you know, I'm not overly religious, but I just found it really inspiring. And then the sermons and the rain and all of that stuff, it just really moved me at, at an age that, uh, you know, so I used to play uh, athletics pretty, I played volleyball quite competitively, varsity and, and in the junior worlds. And so I I took a recording of Eric Little's speech for inspiration and I often play it before some of my games or something. So oh, wow. I was a strange, strange young man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody, it's funny, like, I'm constantly hearing actors explain, you know, that they listen to music for, for roles, they they make mixtapes to figure out how to get into character, sorry, playlists now, but yeah. Um, yeah. inspirational speeches is something that comes up every now and then, and it's not, oh, it's never actually the same one, it's always something else, and this yeah. being sort of a synthesis of, of film and, and, and reality, like it is yeah. based on a true story, that... That's kind of like a pure inspiration thing. It's really fascinating. Yes, I think so. And, you know, it's funny because I, I scanned Wikipedia to, you know, re-familiarize myself with the film and found all sorts of kernels I didn't know. But the 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 actor who played Eric Little came from the theater. Um, they, in Charleston. They, yeah, they found him in the Scottish – or you said Royal Shakespeare Company or something do, doing a play. And, and so – it's probably that too. Is there's a theatricality to the way he 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 spoke that stuff, you know, which which spoke to me as a as a you know a theater rat, I think, um, and, and and a Shakespeare buff is my thing. So it's it's not for naught, I guess, that I was moved by the rhythms of that speech because it uh, is very Shakespearean, you know, for a film. 
Yeah. I mean, it is such a, it's such a strange animal as a movie too. I, I revisited it um, for this and, and hadn't seen it since I'm going to guess 1982. Um, sure. sure. Yeah. I saw it at the, the Willow theater on a double bill with the outsiders and it made no sense. And is that when it came out? Was it 82? 1981. 81. Okay. Yeah. But same time, there was the time when I was doing my first seasons as a, as a 10 year old kid on the Stratford stage. So it probably is aligned with that for me, memory wise, because at the same time that I was sitting on a stage with some of the greats in Stratford history, listening to them do Shakespeare, I saw that film. So it it probably has a, a link that way too. Yeah. And so how old would you have been? I, I would have been 10. I was born in 71. So, so I would have been, yeah, t- 10 when it came out. Isn't that, and 10 when I, you I started at Stratford. Was, yeah, and 10 when I started at Stratford. I, w- I was a young, uh, I played fairy number two in The Merry Wives of Windsor in, my, in, in 81. <laughs> and then I played a, a singing page in um, As You Like It in uh, 82. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I was only a little bit older. I would have been... 13 and 82 when I saw it. Um, And all I knew at the time was that it was the film that beat Raiders of the Lost Ark for best picture at the Oscars, (laughs) which is an incredibly childish way to perceive it. I, I well, no, I, there you go. I, I, that was around that time too, but um, (laughs) uh, yeah. And I, I've watched it a gajillion times and, and really periodically Google some of those sermon scenes. I mean, I mean the, the great scene when he, when he spills on the track and gets back up. I mean, I like you can't, you know, it's just fantastic. It still gives me chills talking about it. I don't know why. And I was never a runner. I played sports, but I wasn't a runner. But yeah, I just love it. Love it. But you have, I mean, you're on board by that point when it happens. You know, you, you, yeah. you're invested so fully that, of course, if you're into sports, you're going to feel it even more profoundly. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, was, I was really struck by a couple of things this time through, which is that it is so not a sports movie, even though it has the structure of one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so calmly, quietly queer in a way that 40 years ago, I don't think. Yes. You know, well, I haven't rewatched it, but it's interesting you say that. Yeah. Um, to talk more about it, because I, I, I can't remember that side of it. But Well, it's just there. It just floats underneath the, yeah. the, yeah. the yeah. attraction, the support, the sense yeah. that everybody sort of feels fluid and I, it did not occur. I mean, I was too young to understand, I think that stuff, let alone interpreted through film when I first yeah. saw the movie, but there's all the stuff about anti-Semitism, but it also feels to me that it's playing into this, this, this nest of young men who are, sure. who are bonding sure. in different ways. And yeah. there are just these little moments, little, little, I don't know if it's friendly support or attraction. I, I could yeah. not tell how the actors were playing it, which I found I, really fascinating. I think you're very right. I mean, fluid's a good word because it, 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 there, there's a great love and attraction amongst those men, uh, mm-hmm. um, and 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 they share a bond in in their love of of that. But yes, that, it's interesting that that's there, and of course the anti-Semitism too. And it, 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 it you know, when I when I reread that, I'm like, oh yes, of course. But you know, when I was ten years old, I wasn't hitting that either. You know, I I, I you know, so so. It would be an interesting one to revisit. So, does it hold up in your mind? Does it does it hold up as a? Um, I I'm curious. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I think it does. I think I might actually like it more now. Sure. Um, sure. In my fifties, sure. as someone who can understand 
the context of the time that it was made as well as the time it's taking place in because you know it's a it's just after world war 1 and it's uh, about england recovering uh from this this gutting of its young men of this this inconceivable law i mean we really don't understand now 100 years later just how devastating that was and how fresh it would have been in the psyche of of Hugh Hudson making it in 1980 sure, yeah, yeah yeah i mean even if he wasn't old enough to remember it he's his parents would have been telling him stories yeah. uh, the same way that another gen his generation would have grown up after World War II and they remember rationing and the Blitz and everything else, even if they didn't live in London, that's, that's just burned into the national consciousness of the English. Sure. Um, sure. And what I got this time is the sense of how badly needed the triumph is, how all these young men who have either missed out on the war or seen things and, and refused to discuss them are trying like they're literally trying to outrun their their collective trauma and and get ahead of it and yeah. that maybe maybe that's why the queerness sort of feels like it's drifting in there too there's this whole strange thing about a devout man and an observant jewish man trying to ignore both of them like yeah. sorry i don't know how to phrase this properly ignore both of their backgrounds in order to form yeah. a team to form sure. a unit sure and it's about yeah. overcoming your own internal prejudice, which is, could also be read as internalized homophobia, right? It's like, it's sure, a pure sure. love between men that Interesting, yeah. also feels sure. like it could be romantic as well as spiritual. Yeah. Having to, having to, um, uh, harbor or, or, or bury parts of yourself in order mm -hmm. to, in order to be, do or be something. I, I also saw in the, in my Wikipedia search, so I'll, I'll admit that, so I don't sound super intelligent here. But, no, go for but it. The, the the producer uh, was looking for a story um, in in a line with "Man for All Seasons," which I find interesting. So, it, in doing the Wikipedia, I was like, "There's so many links to theater in this film." That 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 that's what was odd to me. And of course, his drive, I guess, according to interviews with "Man for All Seasons," is he wanted to find a story about someone who who had a crisis of conscience, you know, like, like we see in man for all seasons. So that speaks a little bit to what you're talking about too, about, about people yeah. questioning, uh, you know, something they've always known or, or trying to put that, bury that aside. Um, how, how does that negotiate? And of course it's a massive story about class as well, which the British are fascinated with. Um, sure. and, and so, um, so that ties in there too. And I, I'm, I'm forgetting too, that I think the Americans are quite, vilified in it aren't they they're 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 sort of the the anonymous enemy i think um yeah they're pretty ugly they're <laughs> they're not even ugly they're just classless right sure, they're, yeah. they're crass yeah. interlopers who don't belong yeah um, yeah 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 so i'm sure there's the little canadian side of me too that, that <laughs> reveled in that but um um yeah and you know add in i've always been also been a a real um when I was young, was it was a nut for classical music? I, I loved it, and so uh, you know the soundtrack and that is gorgeous too, and that 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 adds to it all. Um, and I think he he recently passed away, didn't he? The the composer Vangelis, yeah, yeah. And it is sort of anti classical, right? I mean, it's it's a a period film that's scored with synthesizers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They, nobody... which is his classic sound, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and no one disagreed with it. I, I couldn't find a single instance of someone saying that it's anachronistic or, or it's wrong. And now we're so alert to composition 
that it just yeah. found, I found it really kind of delightful that everyone just assumes, well, it's another time. And I guess this music is appropriate to it, but it is like, it's so indelible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got a, you know, it's got the, that beautiful scene running on the beach at St. Andrews. It's, it's got that, that sort of galloping rhythm, you know, I mean, it, it, that synthesizer sort of hits the heartbeat of, of an athlete of, of the, the feet on the sand and stuff. It's uh no, it's, it's, it's gorgeous music. Yeah. yeah. It, it, did he win for soundtrack that year with, I mean, it, it won yes. a whole yeah. bunch of Academy Awards, right? Okay. I think it yeah. won. I should double check this right now. I was going to say, I think it won six. I thought um, it was seven, but there's, there's my, see, yeah, here. it was nominated for seven. Okay. And, one, and it won only four. Uh, I mean, picture, oh. uh, original screenplay, costume design, and film editing. Okay. Uh, I and, remember. And one oh, no, five. Sorry. Five, five and score. Okay. Yeah. Um, one more theater link for me is that I totally didn't know is John Gielgud's in it as well. Yes. But, of know, course. He's a great Shakespearean actor. So I, it's very weird that, that, that at that time in my life, that movie spoke to me, I guess. Very odd. Yeah, it's um, my the joke of John Gillard is like I think it was immediately after making Caligula he wanted something you know noble. And- <laughs> well, I have a, my one of my mentors at Stratford was Brian Bedford, and sure. Brian was directed several times by Gilgood. So I I have a I have a one degree of separation to to John and Bedford would always use the Gilgood's pass down a lot of his approaches to Shakespeare's text and something that he learned. So, uh, so it's sort of a neat connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I always enjoyed seeing him. He was always, it's one of the, well, I mean, we're about the same age, so you'd have had the same experience. Like every time you see him, he was just, he was always old. He was never a young man yeah. in my mind. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And to, to see him in the roles that he started to take towards the end of his career, things like, you know, Arthur and just to play yeah. instead yeah. of to be stentorian and, and, you know, important. But I think it, I think I have this story right. I think it was Gilgood who it's either through Bedford or somebody else who he phoned him in his, how old was John when he died? He was well into his nineties, wasn't he? 93, I think so. 94, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, he, so I think around the age of 90, he brought, brought, somebody phoned him and asked how he's doing. He said, well, I'm not, I'm firing my agent because I'm not getting enough uh, parts or something. Yeah, 90, <laughs> so. <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, consummate professional, but um yeah, but I, of course, forgot he was in that, too, as, as a, a professor at Cambridge or something. Yeah, oh, the cast is loaded. I mean, uh-huh. um, you've got Lindsay Anderson, the filmmaker, who yeah. also yeah. just happens to be here, and, and Ian Holm, who's the Ian only Holm. actor nominated for an Oscar in the cast. Really? But really? Yeah. Okay. I had okay. I had completely forgotten he was in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, just delighted to see him. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, now, Ian Holm plays the, the, the coach. The of, coach, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And again, it's an interesting take on it, right? Like it's not, I guess the the defining thing about Chariots of Fire is that it is not an American sports movie right at a point in time when there were dozens of them being taken very, very seriously. I mean, there was Rocky, obviously, but The Bad News Bears was a huge hit. Like all these American films about sure, uh, yeah. The Longest yeah. Yard, the 60s were, uh, were okay, but then the 70s, they just exploded. Exploded, yeah. And yeah, yeah. here is this little film about the most basic sports competition. I mean, it's really, there are no, there's no equipment, right? There's nothing but the man running just, versus just the, the cleats, other men running. You know, but, but you know, it's interesting you say it's not a sport movie because I, I think you're right. I mean, it, to me, the attraction to it was the, 
the the relationships and the and the depth of the characters, I think, and 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 as you say, the great love. I mean, the relationship between um, Abrams and and in Holmes' character, the coach is 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 extraordinary. Um, so I yeah, I I think I fell in love with those stories, and it happened to be centered around sports. But you know, there's the great. Um, Oh yeah, when they're in the locker rooms, putting the cleats on, and the, just in sort of silence and prepping for the for the run, it's uh, um, it's great. And of course, I forgot about. Well, I got to rewatch it now, but um, it, the great American runner hands him a note before he runs that four hundred race, right? Um, and uh, I think it's a Bible, biblical quote or something. But uh, yeah, do we? Yeah. I can't. I can't remember. I know that a lot of the notes that are seen in the film are real. Mm-hmm. The actual text of the letters that people wrote to their parents and all, but yeah. Yeah. that that yeah. scene feels like it would also have to be factually accurate. Like someone sourced that moment. It, it doesn't so. feel like anything yeah. in the film is taking too much of a liberty, which I think is one of the reasons people dismissed it at the time as a kind of a dry film because it mm-hmm. it's so much more, as you say, about the relationships than it is about the Olympics. Yeah, I, I think he. I mean, you know, this is pre uh, uh, social media days, but I. I, I <laughs> So, so what he did, I think the, the screenwriter is he put took an ad out in a newspaper or something and asked for anyone to submit stories they had from that 1924 Olympics and, oh, I didn't and know so God, so a lot of these stories came from people saying, well, yeah, my, you know, my grandfather was so and so, and that that's where it kind of came from. But I I, I find it funny editing an ad in a newspaper I guess, instead of doing a a social media blast. But yeah. And this is Colin Wellen, the actor who was the screenwriter who was himself an actor. He, he yeah, was yeah, in Kes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, which I didn't yeah. know until this viewing, and I recognized yeah. it this time. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I'm not a listen. You're a you're a film buff, and I, <laughs> I certainly am not. But I but I I think the films, and if I rewatch this, be curious to see because years ago I watched, I tried to go through some of the great films, and I I watched in the heat of the night. I remember and and. I was amazed. So, so I, I'm a stage actor mostly, but I, but I do film. And quite often when we as stage actors go to do film, the, the note we get is speed it up, you know, because <laughs> we, we take moments on stage that, especially TV, I did three years on a cop show and they, you got no time. It's just, you know, hands up, get out of the car, let's go. There's no time for moments. But I was amazed when I watched in the heat of the night, how slow and, and, the moments were this, there was space between the lines. And I don't know if that's the same for chariots of fire, but I would call that a very theatrical approach to filmmaking. And we don't see it much anymore because we edit it so fast now, at least in my humble opinion, that, that you, you, you can't sit in moments, you know, and, and an example I'm rambling on now, but we, we film the Shakespeare's at Stratford every year. And what happens is they've got to edit them. And whenever I watch them, I get frustrated because an editor goes in and will edit a theatrical pause or moment of mine that that worked very well in the theater, whether to get a laugh or, but it's gone in the film. <laughs> and so I, you know, so it's, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're two different mediums, I guess, but I appreciate the pace, the slower pace of some of those older films. I, I did not know they did. So they tighten up theatrical performances. They do particularly. Um, yeah, they, they, they edit them. And so when they go to the Cineplex, they're edited. And when they go, CBC will often air them and they're really edited. Like, like they're, they're cut down to get it inside, you know, to a, a two hour and 40 minute play inside two hours or something. for mm-hmm. CBC. So they really edit down, but, but yeah, you, you lose those, 
moment. So, so what happens in a movie theater for whoever's watching it is you, you don't get the laugh that you got in the theater because somebody has just by a nanosecond shortened that moment, you know? Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the new Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. This week, I wrote about Amazon's fun new time travel show, Paper Girls, Kino Lorber's 4K release of Eastern Promises, and the bizarre experience of stumbling across a terrible, terrible movie I had totally forgotten seeing twice as a kid. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. It's the power of the editor in film. I mean, uh, I think a great actor once said to me that they consider themselves the, they present the palette of paint and then the director and the editor paint with it, you know, basically is what the actor's doing. So, Yeah, I mean, there's the three, right? The film is written, then it's shot, then it's cut. Yeah. But yeah. stage yeah. is one act shorter. I mean, it's just from the writing to the performance and that's it, that's you right. take it home with you. Yeah. Yeah, so the actors have, I, I guess, more power to either make it better or ruin it, I <laughs> whichever way you go, I guess. I've seen both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I've seen yeah. films screwed up in the editing, so, you know, it can't mm -hmm. be helped. Um, oh, it, yeah. Everything is vulnerable oh, yeah. if you don't have it exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if this Chariots of Fire feels theatrical. It felt naturalistic to me. It felt okay. observational in the in that, in a, in a drawing room yeah. drama sort of way, but still yeah. theatrical because the rhythm of the cutting is such like Terry Rawlings is the editor and he's just a ah. stone professional. This guy, yeah. I'm going to pull up his credit. So I actually get it right, but I know I can think of dozens of films that he cut. Um, yeah. He cut alien. He, um, <laughs> right, right. You know, he knows, he knows what to do and how to do it. Yeah. One of his last movies was the core, which I love this totally silly disaster movie with Aaron Hackhart and uh, Hilary Swank and Stanley Tucci. What uh, movie? Which one? The core. Um, okay. It's almost oh. 20 years old now. The Earth is uh, the Earth's core stops spinning and chaos reigns, and so a team of idiots have to take a, a drilling machine into the center of the Earth to detonate a nuclear weapon and restart it. It's fine. <laughs> it's all fine. Um, but it knows exactly what it's doing. It's a very very silly film. And the director is Johnny Meal, who was uh, an English filmmaker who sort of a journeyman worked with you know Oscar Bate and also big silly studio pictures. Um, Kind of like Hugh Hudson did, I suppose. I mean, he produced and, and ultimately took some directorial credit for Greystoke, which was a Robert Town project, um, and Revolution, this this gargantuan project. I mean, it's it's weird. Um, the the Hugh Hudson story is fascinating because he didn't get the credit he deserved for Chariots of Fire uh, because David Putnam was such a an active proponent of the film. Uh, he was the one who wrote about it. He was the one who who did the Oscar campaign. He brought Hudson along, but there was he, there was always the implication that Hudson was just the guy who came in and called action, which sure. is terribly unfair because this film is directed. I mean, someone has worked with the actors. Someone has worked Beautiful. in Beautiful. post. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's it yeah. has a vision, and then he never got to do anything else like it um, because he was immediately vaulted into these big prestige projects from Warner Brothers after the movie won the Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, so he ended up helming this super serious revisionist Tarzan film, uh, which everyone remembers as a colossal disaster. Um, and it wasn't 
anybody's fault. It was just a misbegotten project from the beginning. Andy McDowell was in it as her, it was her first film and she was famously dubbed by Glenn Close because they decided her voice was too Southern for the oh English character God, she was playing. Ringing a bell, yeah. Yeah, Christoph Lambert was the lead and he's yeah, yeah. he's interesting, but the whole idea of going back to Edgar Rice Burroughs and making a serious Tarzan movie from the man who brought you Chariots of Fire, it all just sort of stacks up into a disaster. Yeah. Um, and, and David Putnam, the producer, what were his credits prior to this? He'd made uh, Midnight Express beforehand. Oh, okay. okay. And then The Mission and the Killing Fields and uh, Oh wow. Okay. afterwards. Oh, and yeah. Local Hero. He made Local Hero right around the same time as this. Okay. okay. He's good at what he does. I, I wish to take nothing away from him, but he was the one who was out front and center with this. And he's the one who tells the story about doing the, uh, the awards tours in the spring of 1982 in Los Angeles and having everyone come up to him. This is in his book and it's a lovely anecdote. Um, everyone would come up to him and say, you know, I'm voting for your movie, but it doesn't have a chance. Oh, and really? It yeah, it was the, like, the way he tells it, it was the consensus favorite, but no one would admit it to each other. Yeah, sure. uh, The same way Coda won this year, I think, just out of attrition, that all the other films burned out so fast in this little picture that Apple just never stopped marketing. Came up the middle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sailed right through. Yeah. Um, and you can see, I mean, it feels like a prestigious film. It feels important, but it doesn't, fall victim to the self-seriousness of it. I mean, there's a there's a heaviness to the material, but the actors just play it so so naturally, so easily. I, I have to say, I did not know that they found Ben Cross in the cast of Chicago. That's uh, right. Yeah, which that's I right. discovered, I did my own wiki run, and, and that was like, really? Yeah. Because yeah. I can't picture it. I mean, I, I guess I obviously it happened, but he is so, his his affect is so serious and composed that yeah. I couldn't see him playing Billy Flynn, who is a much looser, sillier character. Yeah, but. I, I, I found that odd, too. And yeah, <laughs> I have it right. Ian Charleston was, um, uh, or Charleston, however it's pronounced, was doing a production of Piaf at the Royal Shakespeare Company when they, they just happened to go see the play. And he said that, that that's the guy. Um, so, so again, a credit to the director, because these were actors that came off beautifully in film scenes that, that weren't, you know, they 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 had Gilgood and those other guys, but but these were newbies to the film world, you know, and, mm. and and pulled off a real naturalism and and heart that's not easy to do. Um, yeah, and the balance between older and younger lends itself to you know the mentorship stuff in sports, but also to the hand holding that it takes for the film to introduce these relative unknowns mm -hmm. to the audience, especially in England. I mean, in America, I don't think anybody knew who anybody was. Uh, yeah, but I'm gonna have to go watch it again now, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think this is great. So when was the last time you watched it all the way through? Was it only the one uh, view? I, I, it has to be. I'm sure I rewatched it on DVD some 20 years ago or something, but I, it certainly has been 20 years. And as I say, periodically I'll go, uh, if I'm YouTubing around, I'll, I'll uh, find either that running scene or the, um, uh, you know, this beautiful scene with Ian Holm when the flag comes up the pole, you know, because he, he's banned from the stadium and uh uh, yeah, I don't know. They're just all they're 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 um, spine tingly moments, you know. They're they're it's all pure inspiration. I think. Yeah. Well, the that's the. I mean, it's it's the sports thing, obviously, but it's also the the pride, the idea that you know any sports film is built on triumph or loss, mm -hmm. uh, which is so clear and easy to understand, even if it's not a culture that, like an American audience watching this, they wouldn't be necessarily familiar with. Like they uh, Warner actually cut the cricket scene that opens the film. Uh, for yes. the North American release, which right. was a big deal right. at the time. 
And why? For a rating thing or something? Or I think they what? just assumed that no one would care. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, that it that it's a foreign sport and that this was in, you know, at a point in time where I guess you'd need a speech by someone to explain what cricket is and why <laughs> how it works to sell it in the audience. And maybe it was the right move too, because it does get into the story a little bit faster. Yeah. yeah. Um, although having seen it since in, in restorations, it's nice. It's fine. I, I, it I don't doesn't... think I know. I, I, I read that, but in my head, I'm like, I don't remember a cricket scene. So maybe I've only seen the one that they, with it edited out. Quite possibly. I think it was restored for one of the Blu-rays, but uh, it's, um, it's perfectly innocuous. It does take a little longer to get the movie started and it would have been a bit alienating, I guess, to an American audience, but I can't sure. imagine, you know, if you're going to see a movie called Chariots of Fire and, and with that poster and that trailer, I can't imagine it being enough of a deal breaker that people just get up and leave. <laughs> no, I don't. I did also read that Cambridge, they, they, they refused to have them film those, those Cambridge scenes at Cambridge, I think, because really? they were afraid of the, because of the anti-Semitism in the script, they didn't want it linked to Cambridge university. So they filmed those at Eton college, I think, but, um, but I think later they, Cambridge was quite sad that they didn't have a, have a link to that film for sure. Yeah, there's so much flying around. There's, you know, the, the intersection of, of um, Harold's romance with Sybil Gordon, who was in Gilbert and Sullivan's troop. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, you get and so there's another alignment. This is weird. So they were performing the Mikado in that. Yeah. And I think it was 81 or 82 that Stratford did quite a famous Mikado that, that was brought back again and again and again. So uh, my worlds must have been uh, colliding in those in those years, yeah. Yeah. Was it ever on tour? Did that yeah. show tour? Cause yeah, it probably did. It was a very, very famous. It, Stratford brought it back three, four times. It was, uh, it broke all sorts of records, and it, it, it always seemed to be on. But I, 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 I'm pretty sure it was eighty, eighty one. I'll have to. Yeah, I saw that production. I just don't remember yeah. where. Yeah, I think they brought it to Toronto, maybe the Royal Alex or something. Yeah, I want to um, say the O'Keefe Center, but that might have been where I saw the Music Man. My yeah. uh, my mom dragged me to well not dragged me I didn't I didn't there hate you go. Them. Uh, Stratford Festival in nineteen eighty two isn't that weird <laughs> and were you you weren't in that one I wasn't in it no but I remember you know uh, at the time I wasn't even planning to be an actor I, I I sang in a in a choir here in Stratford and they needed young boys who could sing so huh. that was my route into Stratford uh, into the festival and the Shakespeare's but. Um, but of course, I remember seeing it, and was it was a huge inspiration for me, for sure. So, how did it work with you? When did you actually choose to be an actor? When did you commit? Uh, <laughs> well, I I did those two years as a kid, and I remember I, I I never ever wanted to be an actor. I you know when you see the underbelly of you know in those days it was still everyone smoking backstage, <laughs> and there was great misery and angst, and you know all sorts of you know you you saw the dark side of theater. As a kid, so I, I thought, well, I never want to do this, and I, I went off to school and studied politics, um, and then I, uh, I was registered for law school, and I came back to Toronto, uh, and I worked at the legislature for a year. I, I joke that that's kind of where I got the bug for acting is watching them operate in the legislature. But I, 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 I remember I said, well, I'll defer my law school acceptance and, and give it a year because I, I, I loved theater, but I never wanted to make a living at it, and. And I, uh, it was the next year I was brought up to Stratford. I, I did a couple um, non-professional productions in Toronto, and then uh, some directors from Stratford came to see it and brought me up. And uh, 
And there it is. And I, I would often run into the person, I can't remember what professor it was at Osgood who kept deferring my LSATs because they were Stratford patrons. And finally, I just uh, gave it up and said, I've, I've got the acting bug and, and here I am. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I probably would have enjoyed law too. There's many times when I'm out of work as an actor, I'm like, dang it, I should have been a lawyer. But anyway. <laughs> So many people have that story, the double life, right? Like this slow discovery that this is the thing you need to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, uh, you know, law and theater, for some reason, are are always aligned. There's there's Mm. often lawyers who lament they weren't actors and actors who lament they weren't lawyers. I don't know what that link is, but it's it's there for sure. I think it's the passion for speaking and being heard. Sure. I think that's always struck struck me as as the the overlap where well it's yeah that's interesting my, my, my father was a judge I mean he was a lawyer first and then a judge and and he and I would often chat about that because he loved theater he probably should have been an actor but he did okay in the law world but but he he would talk about that about about giving a charge to the jury or something and that sort of public speaking idea as a as a judge so there's there's they're both sort of theaters of sorts I suppose I know people who run improv classes and they say every now and then the lawyers will show up to take one or two to learn how to be faster on their feet. And they can always spot them because the poise is different. They, like, the energy is is wrong for theater. You have to be yeah. open instead of prepared. Yeah, sure. Or you have to be prepared yeah. enough to be unprepared, I think is how they put it. Oh, it's interesting. So the lawyers want to take, okay, I guess to be able to, to you know, move on the fly or something like that. I guess. Yeah, I suppose yeah. it is. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, sure it does. And I, I think you have to, there's a bit of off the cuff, certainly when you're giving summations or something where you need to convince a jury. But um, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you said the other uh, film that you would have been willing to talk about was E.T. Anna Hopkins <laughs> did that on the show. And I'm just, I'm very, very curious to, to know what the connection is other than temporal. Were these just two films that hit you at the right time in your I think so. You know, E.T., uh, I, it was the first experience I had I remember I came home for some reason I was sleeping on a mattress at my grandmother's or something. I don't know. My mom must've been away or something, but, and I couldn't stop crying. Like I, I, I was, it was the first time in my life a, a piece of art hit me, you know, really hard. Like I, I, I was really devastated by the whole thing. Um, and of course I did rewatch that one recently with my daughter and she was beside herself too. You know, it, it it's, um, and so it's an odd one, I know, but I, I guess they're both films that at a time in my life affected me, you know? And, and so when I thought about what film I'm going to talk about, I'm like, well, it has to be something that, that really, I feel kind of changed my life, you know? I, I'd, you know, Braveheart is in there too, I think, and a few others, but, but E.T. was um, a special one because I, I think it was that first time I just had my heart broken by buy a film, let alone any piece of art, I think. Yeah, I I I love it. It holds up. It's it's just <laughs> it's well it's just pure narrative. And yeah. and the thing that was boggling my mind, well not even that, but the thing that I was struggling with was I can absolutely see why you as an actor would be drawn to Chariots of Fire, even if you didn't know you were going to be an actor. Like mm-hmm. it has that language, it has that performance. It's about being the best version of yourself. It's all the things that acting feeds into. E.T. is, I mean, there's almost no dialogue. It's all, it's all gesture and, and, and connection. And it is like, it's a masterclass in acting because you're dealing with an inanimate object. That's your co-star and, and sure. Henry sure. Thomas is remarkable, but it does seem so 
so counter to the energy of Chariots of Fire, although they are both, you know, they, they build towards this incredible rush of emotion at the climax. They're otherwise so different. I'm just fascinated by it. And yeah, and I, I think also it's a little known fact. Although, although if you uh, if you go onto YouTube and this is my my party trick is if, if you Google Keanu Reeves teddy bears. Uh, I was interviewed when I was 13 years old by Keanu Reeves pre Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure about my teddy bear collection, and and apparently. This clip made it all the way to the Tonight Show because they were Keanu was on there as a guest, and they had found this clip of him going to the teddy bear convention. So, but <laughs> I had a teddy bear collection, so I I loved these sort of inanimate object things that that I saw life in, you know. Another, I guess, you know, early thing of being an actor, I suppose I, I could imbue things with, with life. Um, mm -hmm. So I suppose the ET thing's a little bit of that too. I mean, he's just this, this odd creature and, and it does hold up. The story holds up. I mean, you know, you wonder if you remade it, they could, whether they'd remake that creature and make him so much better because at times he does just look like a, a little puppet. Uh, but, um, and the, but the kid is amazing and I get, I still love watching his audition, which I'm sure you've seen for yeah. that part. You know, I mean, it's a story. It's amazing. My heart. amazing. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's, I guess both those films, they're, they're moving films that they're, they're, they're weepy films at a time. And, and that's my Irish blood, I guess. And, uh, and they're, they're human, you know, they're, they're, they're simply and beautifully acted, I think. And um, so that's, uh, I guess that's why I picked them both. But isn't that funny? I, I thought, you know, the two things that came to mind were films from my childhood rather than anything as a as an adult. And um, although I was going to say with Nail and I as well, but I didn't know how many of your um, listeners would know that one. But as a as a grown up actor, that's that I have seen that about seventeen thousand times. But, yeah, there is a film about the love of performance. Yeah, 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 or the hate of performance. And, and I did run into him at a film festival. Um, Grant. Richard e. Grant or yeah, Richard E. Grant, yeah, and and I uh, I went up to talk to him and I I'm I'm usually good with famous people and I just turned to jelly. I, I couldn't remember <laughs> because I you know as I got close to him, like I'm staring in the eyes of, of Withnail here, and I I couldn't even remember my own name. Yeah, that that is a remarkable moment too for for Grant, just because they messed him up and dirtied him a little bit, and somehow he has aged into that version of himself. Like he <laughs> yeah. he's not messy now, but. Withnell is older than Grant. Like he physically, he's worn down by the alcohol abuse and everything else. And Richard E. Grant has somehow aged into that to a point now where it's, funny, yeah. he has this yeah. glee in his eyes. It's still very youthful. Well, he does. And I, so I'm, I don't know if you followed him through the pandemic because he would do, um, he would do little quotes from Withnell every yeah, day yeah. to get people through. And, uh, I was loving it, but yeah, he, he, he's Withnell for sure. For sure. Always. Yeah. So is there, this is the harder question because I cannot see how, but mm -hmm. is there anything from Chariots of Fire that you've used in your own work or borrowed or, st or outright stolen for something? Ha 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 I don't know about stolen or borrowed. As I say, I, I, you know, when I, when I played sports, I had on a little cassette tape, that mm -hmm. little speech, um, uh, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket, and our country's a small dust in the balance. All things before him are as nothing, 
and they've come to do him less than nothing in vanity. He bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth. I, I, I have it off book, you know. <laughs> and so that's from, and I haven't seen the film in 20 years, so that's how much I listened to that speech. And I would just say the, I think my love of Shakespeare, which has come about, that was just an early you know, my, my mom said I was an odd child. I used to memorize Shakespeare as a kid, too, because I just love the poetry. I love the music of it. And and so I would say that that sense of that theatricality or something to that is is certainly something I've uh, I've kept in my heart for, for all these years. Um, and uh, as I say, I still I, I was shooting a, a film in the pandemic and I was playing a, um, a sort of churchman. So I was in the basement of this church and. And there framed on the wall was that quote from the Bible, wherever it's from. And uh, and so I just thought that was that was an odd uh, about face. But so I, I still I still recite that one for inspiration. I, and as I say, I'm not overly religious. I just find it um, I find it poetic. Um, so so I would say that. It, and, and one day, I hope. Because there was a theater production made of this, I think. Um, I don't know where it went on, but somebody did a theatrical adaptation of, of that film. So maybe yeah. I'll get to act in it one day, but I'm getting, I'm going to have to play Gilgood's role or something. I'm getting too old. <laughs> How would you even stage it? I don't know. I mean, you'd have to, it might get a bit foolish. I mean, you'd have to, it would, you know, it'd be the slow-mo run. I can think of all the bad ways. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it, you're drawing a very thin line between comedy and, and drama there, I think, when you're doing slow-mo running. But, uh, I wonder if you could just do it without the running at all. Just leave the leave the event out and just have it be about the locker room. I bet team. you could. I bet you could. I, I mean, Shakespeare did it. He, he a lot of his plays. He kept the battles off stage because they they couldn't do it. It's too expensive. So so there's probably a way to do that. I think. Yeah. Okay. And if the stage adaptation isn't that, maybe you should do this anyway. Yeah, I I I, I would love to adapt it. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> My thanks to Graham Abbey, who's prepping two shows with his festival players right now in Prince Edward County, the Flight Festival of Contemporary Dance, which starts Tuesday, August 9th, and Kristen De Silva's new romantic comedy, Beyond the Sea, which opens August 24th. Details for both shows are online at festivalplayers.ca. Thanks also to Jen Paris. She knows what she did. You can find Graham on Twitter at Grabby, G-R-A-B-B-E-Y, and you can find Chariots of Fire on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment and streaming in the U.S. on Showtime. It's also available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms in North America. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is By the Last Year, If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.